Our passages will be up there. Um, Mark 14. We're back in the book of Mark today and excited to be there. Um, Mark 14. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 23. We're going to be in Genesis 3. Um, And as you turn in your Bibles, again, we've just got a few announcements. The first is that through the Bible, uh, our online study on Facebook and on our church website, that starts again tonight through the book of Joshua. So we've gone through the books of law. Now we start on the books of history with a three-week series that starts tonight. Uh, we get together. We study for about 45 minutes online. You can send your questions in. Tonight, folks, it's going to be fire because we're talking about Rahab. Um, we're talking about a step of faith that the, uh, that the children of Israel are asked to take. They're actually asked to step into the Jordan River before God parts the water for them. Uh, this is a little different than the miracle with Moses. And it's going to be a good time tonight. We're going to see Jesus everywhere. Uh, so that's going to be tonight, 7 o'clock. If you need more information on that, see me. Wednesday night, we are back. Kids ministry start at 6.15. We do pizza, we do games, we do a Bible lesson, and the adults... Well, our message this Wednesday night is going to be called The Fear Factor. So that's going to be, and again, based off of some of the teachings in Joshua, that will be this Wednesday night. Um, I have some good news. School is back in session this week, so we have to break down today. And no, but I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance by switching to Geico. Um, yeah. Not sponsored. Uh, so, so that's, yeah. So now we do have to break down today and, uh, that we have to break down today. We will be here at six o'clock on Friday night setting up. Um, you'll notice something different about the setup. There's a reason for this. This, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, as, as we're doing Bible study, uh, it's a good thing to be able to sit down and to take notes. Uh, for those that like taking notes, it's a little easier to do it like this. We have the Bibles on the table. I'd like to get some highlighters and some pens and some notepads and to have these things on the table so that uh, so that we're able to focus on the Word of God more. It would be easy to talk to the person next to you through the service. Please don't. We're here to hear from God today, and it's going to be a great time. Uh, i I got to say that I sent Anthony a video the other day of a message that I was watching, and I said, this is the best... This is the best teaching on this subject I've ever heard. And Anthony sends me back. He's like, PJ, you know, every teaching that you send is the best one you've ever heard. And, and it's the same with the teaching of the Bible. As we're getting ready to teach today, it's like it's hard for me to sit over there, and I'm enjoying the worship, and I'm lifting my hands up. But what's hard is that I, I can't wait to get up here today. Because of what we're studying and uh, the application of things that happened 2,000 years ago and how they reach into our lives today and touch our lives, um, I think you're going to find this really applicable for anybody that's ever moved at the wrong time. So that's going to be uh, what we take a look at today in Mark 14 as we continue now verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Our retreat is the 19th. We leave after church, so we'll break down after church. Then we're going to be going two hours north to a place called Riverside Camp. Uh, and we have more information on that for anyone interested. We still have a few spots there, and we'd love for you to join us. Um, and we can give you more information. If anybody is interested in that, please see us after service. Uh, we're going to have some barbecue out there. We are going to have some Bible study. We're going to have a lot of fellowship. Uh, for those of you that like fishing, not like me, um, but if you do like fishing, they have fishing rods there. You just have to bring your own bait. Um, so we'll talk about that. But there are different things, kayaking, uh, that are, that we're able to do out there. But this mostly is a time of prayer, 
fellowship, worship, and this is going to be good. Some people will just come out for the Sunday night. That's fine. If you want to stay out Monday, we can do that. The kids are off from school. So that's going to be uh, the weekend of the 19th. And then right before that, that Saturday, the 18th, is Decision America uh, with Franklin Graham. So uh, we're excited about that. So uh, if you have any questions about that, please see Anthony back there. And um, I think that that's it for the announcements today. I think so. <laughs> Mark 14. Before we read, just a little bit of background where we left off a few weeks ago before we started our Christmas series, that Jesus, this is the prayer in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. He tells the disciples, you all sit here while I pray, and then he moves on with the other three, Peter, James, and John. And he prays to God, all things are possible through you if it, if it be in your will, take this cup. And every time he prays that, he goes back and he sees that the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so now we're at the point where everybody has been pressed and what they believe and who they are is revealed by what is happening, the events surrounding them. And that brings us to uh, verse 43 where we'll start today. And immediately... While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. A better translation of that says, lead him away securely or under guard. I don't like the translation that says safely. I mean, I like the translation, that's why we do it, but I don't like this particular verse translation. Lead him away safely. Leave him away under guard. As soon as he had come immediately, he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out? As against a robber with swords and clubs to take me, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth, that linen cloth is going to become very important later, thrown around his naked body, and the young man, the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. But Father God, we just again, we have your truth before us. Most of us here are very familiar with this story. We're familiar with the Judas kiss and the betrayal. And the disciple that draws a sword. And all of them forsaking and fleeing. But today we pray fresh eyes, fresh ears, open heart. Please speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You would agree that there is a time that moving may be necessary. 
Moving may be necessary. Your rent is increased. It might be time to move out. You have the possibility of a promotion at work. It might be time to move up. You sit next to somebody at the movie theater and there's not enough room. There might be a time to move over. You're in a relationship that isn't what you thought. Might be time to move on. Influences around you are bad. Sometimes it's the right time to move away. Pastor starts asking for money every week. Just move. By the way, we're going to take a, a collection right now. <laughs> Pastor starts offering for money every week, then you move. Okay, there's a time, because moving is a part of life, but moving is uncomfortable sometimes. Whether it is that you're moving out of the country, you're moving out of the state, you could move across town, and it's still a pain. And most of us don't like moving, but it is a necessary part of life. Yet there are times in our life, while though moving is necessary, that moving is a bad idea, and it's not good for us. We learn this in the game, Simon says. If Simon doesn't say it, you don't move. Simon says it, you move. I learned a painful lesson as a child about moving in places that you shouldn't while sitting in the barber's chair. All right? You're sitting in the barber chair, and they're saying, okay, don't move. And I'm like five or six. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to move. But I'm moving because I'm scared to death and I'm shaking. And now I'm like, I can't help it because I'm five or six. I move. They slice my ear and it's like I've got blood all over the place. Probably best during those times not to move because there are times that you really shouldn't move. Dentist is coming near you with a shot of Novocaine. Needle is this big. You would do well not to move when he puts that needle in your mouth. No? So there are times that it's time not to move. Times that are best for us to be still. And that's why I think that this passage is really important today. Because as we continue, uh, this is a message that we've titled Fight or Flight. Anybody that took psychology in high school, even Psychology 101, knows that the fight or flight talks about a response to stimuli, to conflict or something like that. And you know, sometimes uh, what we do is we fight in that conflict and sometimes we flee. We're going to see both today. And this is the right place to see it, because we find ourselves at Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. What we said is that that word means basically it's an olive press. And we talked about the pressing of all that are there that night, falling asleep while Jesus said, hey, just stay awake, keep watch, keep me company. And we see that they fall asleep, and now... What we're going to take a look at today is we're going to learn three lessons about times when it is particularly bad to move. Three things that can happen in our lives that will make it this is not a good time to move. All right, we're going to see these three people move. We're going to see why they move and what their movement leads to. The first move we're going to see is made by a man that Scripture refers to as the son of perdition. It's one person that Jesus said, he's the one person that Jesus said it would be better had this man not even been born. The next person that we're going to take a look at is a faithful disciple who mistakenly draws his sword at the wrong time. Mark doesn't name him. John does. And the next that we see is going to be of a young man that flees and runs away in the situation. So three men, three lessons as to when and why moving can be a bad thing, but they're going to be effectively countered by the one that's in the garden with them. 
And that's Jesus and what he does during this time. So let's take a look back at Mark 14, verses 43 and 44 real quick. And it says, immediately, Mark loves that word, immediately. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him and lead him away safely. Stop right there. There are two Judases mentioned in Scripture, two that are called by Jesus to be disciples. This one you know to be Judas Iscariot. It says he was numbered as one of the twelve, but on this night he's going to take sides, finally. Now he's going to be numbered not with the twelve. God bless. Now, God bless. We can do that in a small church, right? We can just stop everything and just say, God bless you. Why? Your heart stops. You better do that. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so now he's one of the twelve, but now he's numbered among the multitudes. He was one of the twelve that Jesus had chosen, but now he was one of the good guys. But now on this night, everything changes and he turns. When I was a kid, I watched wrestling. How many of you watched wrestling when you were kids? All right. And so when you saw the good guys, when you saw Hulk Hogan come out in the yellow with the bandana and, and just so psyched up and telling all the kids to say their prayers, take their vitamins and get sleep and work out and do all these things, Hulkamaniacs. And when Hulk did that, well, the one day he was standing in the wrestling ring, all right, and he's with all the good guys, and now what he does is he takes up a chair, a metal chair, and he bashes one of his friends in the head, and it's what in wrestling they call turning heel. He turned bad guy. Hulk Hogan. I've dealt with it, though. I mean, I'm fine with what happened, what I saw as a child. Now listen, it's what they call turning heel. It's when one of the good guys that you were rooting for, and wrestling knows what it's doing. They know how to manipulate an audience. The more that they can get you to root for him, well, the more when he turns, you'll be like, no, no way, not him. Even the good guys are turning. You get the point. See, the more that you're invested in someone, the more when that person turns on you, that's betrayal. Right? The greater the love relationship. If there's no love relationship there, it's really not a betrayal. But the more there's a love relationship there, the more it's a greater betrayal. What went wrong, Judas? Didn't I treat you like the other disciples? Weren't you raised in the same environment, in the same atmosphere, with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and the rest of the boys? So what went wrong? And we could take a look and we could say, well, maybe it was the environment. And sometimes you can attribute the environment to someone's challenges, but here's the one thing that you can always contribute to their challenges. That is the fact that they've been born in sin. So it is with Judas. When you take a look back in the Bible at the book of Genesis, you see the story of Cain and Abel. Okay, before there's social media, before there's 24-7 news, you have the two boys raised by the same parents in the garden, but two very different hearts. And so sometimes you can blame it on the environment, but we can always attribute the turning of a man or a woman to sin. And that's our lesson with Judas, because now he comes with a great multitude, and they've got clubs and swords. Why? All he did was teach them. All he did was love them. All he did was come alongside them and heal the people that their physicians couldn't heal. All he did was love them, and now... Here they come with clubs and swords, and Judas says, okay, this is going to be my signal. And of all the signals he could choose, out of anything that he could have done to indicate who he was betraying, who Jesus was, out of all he was doing, 
I'll do it with a kiss. Nothing to betray someone like that. Nothing can touch the heart like that show of intimacy that God has given man of a kiss. And then I'm going to call him rabbi. Rabbi, rabbi. So you're showing respect and you're showing the sign of intimacy and then you turn. Now he sided with the multitudes. Now he's turned on all of them. But I suggest to you that Judas didn't turn there. Judas turned long before that. See, the Bible tells us when we study the Last Supper, when we study that passage, it tells us that Satan entered Judas's heart. And we take a look and we say, well, Satan entered Judas's heart. He couldn't help it. The devil made him do it. John, make sure you get a clarification on that. John throws, throws Judas, boom, straight under the bus. He says, listen, he was stealing from the money thing for three years. And so maybe you could see it like this when we think about Judas. The Jesus, Jesus was with the disciples, and maybe in those special times that he took Peter, James, and John aside, maybe to the top of the mountain, Judas was down with the rest of the disciples saying, hey, I've got to take care of some business. And he's going over to the money bin. And as he's exposed to the same teaching, as he's seeing the same miracles, as he's feeling the same love, Judas is busy not receiving the thing that's right in front of him. But what he's doing instead is he is living the lie. And every time he does that, what happens is, is that the heart gets hardened. He was created for love relationship to worship one thing, but because he worshipped money, what happened was is that he was worshipping something lifeless so his heart had no life in it. And that was a perfect breeding ground for Satan, the father of confusion and hate. So here you have Judas, and he's turned on Jesus. And this brings us to the first lesson that we leave about a time that's not to move, because the thing that you see in Judas' life is pride. He knows better than God. He doesn't like the way Jesus is doing things, and so he turns on Jesus because he thinks things should be done his way. And so it's the first thing that we see. It's the best time not to move is when you're prideful. All right? It's a good time not to move when you're sitting there and you're digging your heels in because then pride becomes your guide. I didn't plan on rhyming that, but that just kind of came out like that. Pride becomes your guide when you're sitting there digging your heels in. And now you're moving for the wrong reasons because you're saying, well, well, that person did that and now I'm going to stay here like this and now I'm not moving or I'm going to move away from that person and we're moving in our pride because we're not seeking God in the matter. Pride is very tricky because it can convince us that we're more than we are. But listen, pride can also convince you that you are less than you are. That's also a form of pride. Oh, as we were saying earlier, God couldn't forgive me because of the things that I did and, and, and I'm this and I'm that. No, now you're labeling yourself. And God has said, listen, if I say I can forgive you, who are you not to forgive yourself? And so that's a form of pride too. And that pride will always lead to us not doing things God's way, but it will lead to us doing things our way. It's the most dangerous and it is the root of all sin. It's why Lucifer falls from heaven and it's how he tempts the man and the woman in the garden saying, listen, you know, you can be like God. Pride is always the thing that says, I got this, I don't need any help. And again, it is at the root of your struggle. Now listen, anytime that you hear the truth, anytime that you hear God's word, you're sitting there and you're having to make a choice. Whether or not you're going to submit to it and listen to it, or you're going to continue to do things your own way. 
For the non-Christian, every time you hear it and you reject it, what's happening is that there's a callus building over your heart. There's a hardening of the heart. For the Christian, what happens is this, is that you hear God's word and you don't do anything about it. What happens is you begin to silence the Holy Spirit. Not lose the Holy Spirit, but you definitely begin to silence the Holy Spirit. And so the stakes are very high. And we see this with Judas. But Judas has now made his choice. And for Jesus to say it would be better for this man had this man never been born. So that's the problem. That's when not to move. But the solution is found in the one that we're watching in the garden with him. Who the Bible says humbled himself in obedience even to the point of death on a cross. You see the solution for pride and the counter to pride is humility. So let me ask you, church, as you're sitting here today, do you want the prideful life leading to rebellion or do you want the counter to it? Because this is the counter as we watch Jesus. It's humility leading to submission. Humility leading to submission, even to the point of death on the cross. There was an old hymn that read like this, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Are you waiting, yielded, and still? Because you've made the acknowledgement, you've done things your own way, and you've said, you know what, my way doesn't work, and so I need it God's way. I need things to happen God's way in my life, because I've tried things my own way long enough, and it just does not work. You see, for the Christian, you understand this, is that the pathway of freedom comes through a cross. Not just the cross of Jesus, but the cross that he tells you to submit yourself to, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. Following him is the way to freedom. But Judas denies this. But for the Christian, you know this. Submission, doing it God's way. How many of you have something in your life right now where you say, you know, I know God wants me to do this, but I'm not doing it. I know God wants me to do this, but I'm not. The more you dig in, the more what you're doing is you're stifling the Spirit. You're quenching the Spirit. You're preventing the Spirit from having its way because you've said, have mine own way, Lord. Have mine own way. And it doesn't work like that. It can never work like that. And you may achieve on this planet a certain degree of joy. You may on this planet achieve a certain degree of peace. You may on this planet experience a certain degree of love, but never will you be unleashed to the thing that God desires for you to be unleashed on until you say, listen, it was pride that caused the fall, and I need to humble myself under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt me in due time. It's humility. Now, please don't mistake humility, because humility is not thinking less of yourself. You've heard this. I mean, I know it's cliche, but let's say it again because we can never say it too much because it's one of the greatest challenges of mankind. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm a terrible person. and I'm this, I'm that, I'm a failure. I'm never going to change. I'm all these lies that Satan is telling us. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And you'll only think of yourself less when you go to the cross more. And that's where the freedom is. That's where the true freedom. So that is the great lesson that we have from Judas. Oh yes, he's still teaching us after 2,000 years. And what man intended for evil, God used for good. But not only good did he use what Judas did for, he used it for the greatest good. The darkest moment in human history where he sells his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. And he betrays him with a kiss. One of the greatest gifts one of the greatest gifts of intimacy God could give us, he uses that to betray Jesus. 
Verse 45. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Stop right there. So we learned a lesson from Judas. And here it's an unnamed disciple, but John names him. So we know that this is Peter that draws his sword out of turn. Remember that he's the one that said, listen, when everybody else fails you, when everybody else lets you down, not me, I'll even go to the cross with you. I'll die for you. This is his opportunity to prove it. And he's the first to draw his sword. But here's what you learn about Peter, first and foremost. He's not a very good swordsman. <laughs> kind of amazes me about Peter, because whenever you see him, though he had a family business fishing, you never see him catching anything until Jesus comes along. <laughs> but now here he pulls out his sword with a multitude of people there. And now if there's a multitude that are coming against Jesus, you would think that he wants a death strike. He's either going to go for the heart or he's going to go for the head, and he misses both and he hits the ear. <laughs> and so that's what you see with, with Peter at this moment. So that he's not a good fisherman necessarily, he's even a worse swordsman, but here's the most important thing is that he strikes at a turn. He strikes at a turn. He's moved by the crisis. This is the second time not to move. The first time not to move is in your pride, but the second time not to move is when you're faced with crisis and to move because of the crisis. Sometimes a crisis makes it necessary, somewhat. But if there's somebody that's constantly being moved by crisis, then what you're going to be is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed about by the wind by every crisis that comes. You're going to respond to it by reacting. All right, And so that's what the crisis can lead you to. If pride leads to rebellion, then crisis leads to reaction. How many reactors do we have in the room? All right, How many nuclear reactors do we have in the room? All right, Reactors. You know what happens. Okay, the crisis comes and boom. All right, here you go. And you're ready to just... Ah. <laughs> <laughs> reacting. Here's what happens. We make it a way of life. Listen, the way that you've been wired was not going to go here today, but let's go ahead and do it. All right, the way that you're wired in your head, when a crisis comes and you keep responding the same way by either losing your temper or folding up or whatever it is, what happens is, is that according to science, you create little passageways from your brain. They're called neuropathways. You create these pathways, and so it's easier every time that you're faced with a crisis to react the same way. Every time you react the same way, you're being conformed by this world, and you're going deeper, deeper, deeper into a negative response. And so you become more likely to react because you reacted. Does that make sense? You become more likely to react because you reacted. So the Bible says, hey, don't be conformed by this world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your minds, which means that you have to be uber-intentional about not acting the way that you normally react. But how do you do that? Because some people thrive on crisis. Maybe you know them. Maybe you're sitting with them. Maybe you are them. Maybe you're sitting there and saying, you know what? All right, this person next to me, or maybe it's myself. Maybe we thrive on crisis. The drama kings and queens of the world, right? 
Listen, if somebody's always in crisis, I can guarantee you one thing. If they're always in crisis, that their connection is off. The first thing you need to do is see if the thing is plugged in. If they're always in crisis, right? Like in my old Mustang, I had a problem a while back and we had to replace the battery. And after we replaced the battery, what I learned when they were replacing the battery was that the connector to the battery was not on tightly. And so two days later, I have a new battery in my, I've got a new battery in my car. But I go to turn it on, it won't start. Now I call the car place. I'm like, come on, man, what's going on? We don't know, it's a new battery. And then all of a sudden, I was reminded of the fact that that thing was loose. Mechanic John popped open the hood, right? Popped open the hood. I put that little thing right back on. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Okay, and now we're going again. All right. By the way, if you need help with your car, don't call me. <laughs> Please don't call me, okay? But here what you have crisis leading to reaction. And usually when we do that, here's the grand mistake that Peter makes. And it's a mistake that we've emulated. Here's the mistake. You ready for it? Because it's really simple. Jesus is right there, and he's not moving. Jesus is in the garden. He's the one himself, personally, that's under attack. And he's not moving. So he's not reacting. It's very interesting. Because there's a man in the Bible named David. He was a man after God's own heart. And if you turn in your Bibles over to 1 Samuel chapter 23, you see something that you have to love about King David. Now, this is before he's even king. Chapter 23, verse 1, reads like this. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Kelia, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Look at verse 2. Therefore David inquired, I stress that word inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kelia. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kelia against the armies of the Philistines? Look at verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him once again. Now, between 1 Samuel 23... And 2 Samuel 21, between 1 Samuel 23 and 2 Samuel 21, David does something that we really don't see a lot of people doing in the Bible and a lot of people doing in life. Between 1 Samuel 21 and 2 Samuel, what we see is David inquires of the Lord steadily. And when he inquires of the Lord, God, should I go up there? Yes, you should go up there. God, should I go up there? Yes, go up there. And when he doesn't ask God, David has a very bad day. It's 2 Samuel 11. In the springtime, when kings went off to wars, he stays home. He doesn't inquire of the Lord. He makes a decision to stay home. He goes on top of his palace. He's seeing Bathsheba. And the rest of the story is misery. I mean history. I mean misery. Because he doesn't inquire of the Lord when we don't inquire of the Lord, when we're not watching Him, when He's right in front of us. And you'd say, well, what is the solution to that? Again, 
Peter goes and he cuts off the ear. Jesus corrects him. Peter, put your sword away. Another gospel tells us that Jesus tells him, hey, put your sword away. For those who live by the sword, what? Die by the sword. And then he goes on, Jesus, to heal what Peter had done. He undid what Peter had done, and he healed Malchus's ear. Yes, we have those names in the Bible. At that moment, Peter freaks out. I'm sure he's sitting there saying, wait a second. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was the one that got it. I thought I was the one that understood. And in that crisis moment, what happens is this. He gets a real lesson about the Savior that he's serving, something that he probably should have known by watching Jesus for three years, but in the crisis, he forgot. There's got to be some kind of an application there, right? Because how many of you at certain times, okay, when, when Peter saw the transfiguration, when Peter saw some of the miracles that the other disciples didn't see, Peter had to feel pretty important. Peter, the only disciple that was actually was able to take even a step on the water, had to feel pretty good about himself. But then there are these moments where he's reminded of who he really is and that God isn't who he thinks he is. He's something greater, but he can't fathom it. So what do we do? All right, Instead of the moving in crisis to react, when we look at Jesus, we should be trusting because when we trust, it'll lead to response. That's the opposite. It's a trust that leads to response when you trust God. A lot of you here today could probably make a list of things that are going wrong in your life right now, things that are not necessarily happening the way that you wrote down, the way that you planned, the way that you intended for them to go. Some things are unraveling before your eyes. And you're being hit with a crisis that God is 100% aware of. Jesus didn't go into this garden unaware, and yet he's not moving. He knows the plan of God because he sets an example for us to trust God and to not move when God's not moving. He's always the smartest one in the room. And you would say, yes, but it would be easy for Peter because he had Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right in front of him. So what do I do? What do you do? Well, Jesus said something interesting to the disciples. He said, it's necessary that I go away so that when I go away, you can have the gift. Okay? If you're a disciple, you're confused. What would be a greater gift than Jesus Christ walking with us? How about His Spirit living inside of you? Do you ever just sit down and weigh the implications of that? That His Spirit is inside of you. Giving you the power over sin. Giving you the ability to display fruit in the middle of crisis. Giving you wisdom in that same crisis. And not only that, but giving gifts so that you could advance His Word so that the crisis can be used to something to glorify God. That's freedom. Now you're trusting in response. You're trusting in and as a response, because you're watching Jesus and Jesus is there. So spend time with Jesus. If you're one that's always in crisis, then the prescription is really simple. 
spend more time with him and being loved by him by reading his word, by reading especially the Gospels where you can just draw close and see how he talks to people, see how he treats people, see what he does in response to the crisis, see how what Jesus does in response to the crisis. Chances are it will sometimes be different than the way that we respond to the crisis. Worry, uncertainty, all of these things, and I have to do something. Sometimes what you have to do is this. Be still and know that he's God and know that you're not. Sometimes you have to just wait upon the Lord. For the Bible says those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now lastly, and this is the part that I could not get, I could not wait to get to this today. Go back in your Bibles. Over to the book of Mark. So we've seen the lesson from Judas. Pride leading to rebellion. Not a good time to move when you're prideful. Then we see the lesson from Peter. And that is crisis leading to reaction. But now we've got one more. And this is so often overlooked, these couple of verses. Verse 51, it says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man, the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Stop right there. I found this interesting because right in verse 50 it says that they all forsook him and fled. So why single out this guy? Why single out this guy? Some speculate, and again, when the Bible is silent on something, we can never really be definitive about it. Some speculate that this is Mark, and it would follow with a pattern that we see in Mark's life. That there was a missionary journey that he kind of called in sick for, and uh, when he called in sick for that missionary journey, you know, Paul got in Barnabas's face and said, listen, for the next journey, he's not coming. Barnabas said, oh, yes, he is. Paul said, oh, no, he's not. Barnabas said, oh, yes, he is, and they split ways, and Barnabas goes his way, and Paul goes his way with Silas. So Mark had a reputation for being a runner. Now, it is believed that if it is the same Mark that they reconciled, but a lot of scholars say that this is probably Mark because he wasn't officially numbered among the twelve. But here's the thing, whoever this is, Mark finds it important to record the events, because though they all abandoned him in the garden, look closely at this, it says, the young man followed him having a linen cloth. Alright? Now that linen cloth in the original language, I want to make sure that I get this right, it's called a syndone. It's usually something that's associated with a burial cloth. Matter of fact, that's the only other time that it's used in Scripture. And what you have here, and this is the third lesson, we have fear leading to retreat. Fear, when you're afraid, that's never a good time to move. When you're afraid. When you're being led by fear. God bless you. Alright? But here what you have, it says that the man flees in fear, and he leaves this syndone behind. And now he's totally exposed. So, though everybody else forsakes him and abandons him, this guy goes the extra mile and he uh, releases his dignity and he's totally exposed. Now he's buck naked and running away, scared. 
All else abandoned him, but not this guy. This guy, he runs away and he leaves even his clothes behind. He's so scared to death and he's exposed and he's in a garden. He's exposed completely. Human nature is exposed for what it is in that moment as being completely separated from God. Now turn in your Bibles back to Genesis just for a moment. Genesis 3. After the conniving serpent gets to the mind and the heart of Eve, verse 6 of Genesis 3 reads like this. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were wide open. It affected their vision. We've talked about this before. And they knew that they were, listen, naked. Here they are in the garden, and they're naked. And so here's what they did. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the tree was the reason they fell. Now they're naked and ashamed, hiding behind a tree. Naked and ashamed, trying to cover themselves and that's when the Lord God calls them out. And again, at that moment, they're naked, they're ashamed, then they're in the garden. And now we see with this young man, and that's when separation comes between man and God, by the way. That's the separation. They begin seeing things differently. They begin hearing things differently. It is an emotional, mental, physical, spiritual debacle in that moment. And for that same reason, those that are born with a sin nature, we see the world through skewed eyes and hear the world through skewed ears today. But now they hear because they're separated, all right, they're fleeing from God. Fleeing will be the natural state of a man that is afraid and not trusting in God. Separated. But here what you have is this. You have a man in a garden, back to the book of Mark, you have the man in the garden, now afraid, fleeing naked. Mankind is completely exposed for who they are. But this is the part that really stuck out to me. Because the one that gets arrested doesn't go in fear. He goes in courage, willingly, to a cross. He goes to a tree where he's going to hang naked and exposed for them. Naked and exposed for them. When he's taken down from that cross, what are they going to do? They're going to wrap him in a sin dome. They're going to wrap him in a linen cloth. And they're going to put him behind a rock. But the reason we don't have to be fearful is because there came a point where he left that place where he was, the linen was left behind, he emerged from the tomb, and because of that, we have life and we have freedom and we have victory because of that. That's truth. That's the gospel. Alright, so the counter to the fear that leads to retreat is love. That means we can have faith and persevere. 